It is a joy to be back in this pulpit today when I consider my 58 years of life now and the many associated memories. Standing here and preaching God's word ranks in the upper echelon of those memories. And being able to do that for almost 12 years as the senior pastor constitutes probably 12 of the best years of my life. For those who may be here today who may be wondering, who is that man standing up there? I've not seen him. My name is Mark Dooley. And you know, it's a sign of a healthy church that I can stand here and say for those who are here wondering who I am, uh, because you haven't seen me around for uh, very long. I pray that the the next time I'm here, I'll be able to say that even more. Uh, So just as background for such people who may be here, I had the privilege of serving as the senior pastor here at Leonardtown Baptist from 2007 to 2018, actually 2008 uh, years senior associate pastor, and then uh, 10 years as the senior pastor from 08 to 18. And since that time, I've been serving as the state director of evangelism for the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware, our uh, Southern Baptist uh, Association of almost 500 churches throughout the Maryland and Delaware region that we partner with. And that position has me often in other churches on Sunday, which is why there are some of you here that I've never had the opportunity to, to meet. Most recently, I've been serving, as you probably heard earlier from Claire and, and Alan, that uh, I've been serving as the interim pastor at Cobb Island Baptist Church uh, up in Charles County. Uh, very thankful that Brother Jim and Camilla are able to be up there today, and he's filling uh, that responsibility for me so that I can be here to be able to pro- proclaim uh, the Word of God. I I really appreciate the opportunity to maintain my contact with my home church by serving as one of your elders, even though I'm an elder you never see. So I'm not a good example of of church membership in that regard, and that I don't come to church. I do go to church, though, just not uh, this church. Uh, But I am so thankful for the opportunities I have to get back periodically. I was here in November, able to worship one time, and then before that, it may have even been pre-COVID, uh, before I was able to to be in church. So, so, so thankful for the opportunity to to be here today to share the Word of God. And we're going to continue the series that Pastor Jason has begun in the Gospel of Mark. And so I, w- I do want to invite you to open your Bible today to Mark chapter 3. We are going to be tackling a sticky passage this morning. This is one of those difficult passages that, honestly, prior to today, I have never preached on this. So I don't know whether I should say, gee, thanks, Jason, for saving this passage for for me to preach, uh, or probably more realistically, I should genuinely say, thank you, Jason, for stretching me, and and, uh, enjoyed the dialogue that he and I had uh, together as as we wrestled through this passage, and I said, I think it, you know, and he's like, well, I think this, and so we had some really good dialogue back and forth to get to the point where we are today. The passage that we are going to be tackling deals with the unforgivable sin, but it also deals with other issues, and it sets the stage well for us as we gather around the Lord's table, which we will do at the end of the message. So hopefully you have found Mark chapter 3 by now, and I'd like to invite you to stand that we might honor the reading of God's Word as I read our passage today. This is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. This is the Word of God, and this is what it says. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. 
So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and and told him, look, your mother, your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Thank you. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, so that we might reserve ample time for the celebration of the Lord's Supper at the end of our message, I just want to dive right in today. Usually I'll tell you an opening story or have some opening remarks prior to getting to that, but I don't want to do that today. I just want to jump right in with three things that I think we see here in this passage. The first is that sometimes we face op- the opposition of earthly friends. Now, in context, Jesus had gone into a house and there were many people gathered around him. It seems like they were going to eat a meal, but the crowd became so great that they they can't even engage in a simple task like eating a meal. The people are just simply too many. And among the crowd that day are some of his friends and family members. The CSB that I was reading from renders this, when his family heard this. And we know, in fact, that some of his family members were there because we're told down in verse 31 that his his mother and his brothers came. But they were outside at this point. You can almost picture them talking to some people, probably other family friends, trying to talk some sense, as it were, into Jesus. There were likely some non-family members involved in this as well. The way that it's worded in Greek, you can really see this because the Greek doesn't say this was his family. Literally, this is what it says. It says, and having heard of it, those belonging to him went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. That would definitely include family members, but it probably also included others from his hometown. There were perhaps those who watched him walk away from what was a a thriving carpentry business to, to become an itinerant preacher who didn't even have anywhere to lay his head. They watched him begin to become consistently embroiled over and over again in controversy with the religious establishment. They watched him begin to associate with men of what they considered to be questionable character, men like tax collectors and zealots, for example. Can you understand their concern and their accusations? If you can, it's unfounded. It's unfounded. Because, listen, friends, when we begin to walk with God, we can expect opposition. And sometimes that opposition will even come from those who are closest to us. I remember hearing a preacher years ago tell about a family in his church. They had twin sons who were graduating from college. One was going to go to the Mideast to work in the oil industry, and the other felt called into mission work. 
He said that the parents were so proud of the son who was going to the Mideast. Never mind that he was going to be in a region of the world that was so war-torn, often breaking out into conflict. He was going to be in the oil industry, and he was going to be making a really good living. They were super, super proud. But they were very concerned about their other son. How was he going to survive on a missionary salary? Fair in a region of the world where he had to learn a new language. Now, never mind, the first son was going to be in a region of the world where he didn't know the language either, and he was going to have to learn a new language. But, but you know, for their second son, they wondered, was there really a future in mission work? This was the perspective of the second son, and this is what the pastor asked. He said, why are we so proud of children who go off into the unknown to work a secular job that's going to pay well, but we're not proud of children who demonstrate their faith and trust in God by going off into the unknown to serve him? And that's a valid question. Praise God for for parents like the Stanberries who support their kids who do that. And there are plenty of other parents who do, but there are plenty of parents who, who don't support their children who, who do that. You know, whether they realized it or not, these parents were actually showing opposition to the gospel through their perspective. I remember well when I was a senior in college many, many years ago now. I, I remember when I announced my intention to go into the ministry, that, that God was calling me into the ministry. It's time for my graduation approached, I began circulating my resume to churches, and I would eventually be called to a church in central Florida to serve for four years as their youth pastor. Ironically, the same city that Pastor Jason once served in. Our churches were literally right down the road from one another, though not at the same time. He was probably literally, given our age difference, in diapers when I was there serving as as a youth pastor. Uh, So, but we were there in, in the same city. Here's my point. I'm telling you this about, though. I had at least one family member and multiple friends ask me things like, so is ministry just something you're going to do till you find a real job? That's an exact quote. Is ministry just something you're going to do until you find a real job? I guess I'm still looking for that real job. But no, in reality, I was never looking for a job. I've been fulfilling a calling ever since I graduated from college in 1984. And so was Jesus. He was fulfilling the calling that God had given him in spite of the opposition of earthly friends. Don't allow the opposition of earthly friends to dissuade you from serving God. And by all means, don't be the kind of person who opposes a family member or a friend who is seeking to serve God. But we not only see the opposition of earthly friends, we also see the accusation of evil foes. Look at verses 22 through 30 again. In verse 22, the the scribes get involved. And families had said he's out of his mind. But the scribes said he's possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is another name for Satan. We often read it in the Bible as Beelzebub. The name first appears in 2 Kings in the Old Testament in reference to a deity that was worshipped by the Philistines. It literally means Lord of the Flies, or some translators, some linguists interpret it, Master of the House. In response to this charge, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. And when Jesus spoke in parables, there was a twofold purpose in him doing that. For some, it revealed truth. 
Even if a person didn't understand the parable, if their heart desired to know the truth, Jesus would uncover the truth for them and explain it to them. And for those of us who know the Lord and and have his spirit abiding in us, the parables of Jesus do indeed present beautiful pictures of gospel truth. We read them and we see so much richness and so much detail about the gospel in them. For others, though, whose hearts were hard, parables didn't reveal truth. They hid the truth. Such people thought they already knew all that there was to know, and the scribes were certainly in in that category. To them, these stories, so to speak, these stories of of Jesus were were nothing but fables or myths that, that really didn't mean anything. They may have thought they were judging the parable, but the reality was the parable was judging them. In the parable of the, of the strong man, notice that Jesus is exposing both bad theology and faulty logic. If Jesus is possessed by the devil and he's driving out demons by the power of the devil, then, then he, he, what he's pointing out here is that Satan would actually be fighting against himself. He would be bringing his own kingdom to ruin and hurting his own cause. And that makes absolutely zero sense, Jesus says. It made no sense then, and it makes no sense today. And I see this taking place so often, especially on the, on the political stage, when both sides are, are claiming that the other side, you know, the other side of the aisle, so to speak, is out to destroy America. You know, what sense does it make that somebody wants to destroy the very place that they live? Now, there are certainly some things that should concern us politically. I so appreciate Pastor Allen's prayer and, and what he had to say in that regard this morning as, as he was praying for that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is people who demonize those who have different political viewpoints from them. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. We should always be careful not to demonize those who see things differently than we do. Unfortunately, though, the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day had no issue doing just that. They would have made good 21st century citizens of the United States in some regards. You know, they had no qualms looking at Jesus and saying he's possessed by the devil. He's driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Now, after laying out this parable, look at what Jesus does. He, he warns these scribes that they are in danger of committing this unforgivable sin. And this is where we need to stop and slow down just a little bit today and give this some time. This is, as I said earlier, one of these very difficult passages in Scripture. What in the world is Jesus talking about. Well, as I've studied this, I've seen very different perspectives coming from people, all of whom I greatly respect and, and largely agree with. And I don't intend today, I want, I want to lay my cards on the table up front here and, and let you know that I don't intend to give you a definitive view and say, this is what Jesus is talking about beyond the shadow of a doubt, because I don't think I can honestly do that. But what I can do is I can give you kind of an overview And I can give you some overarching principles that apply no matter what position you take. These things will be true no matter what you view the unforgivable sin to be. So what are some of the perspectives of the unforgivable sin? Well, first, some people believe that it's not even possible for us to commit this sin today. Their perspective is that this was something restricted to the Jews of that time. And this argument begins 
kind of like this. It says that, you know, John the Baptist was, was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. But what happened? He came and he was rejected and they cut his head off. And so in the rejection of John the Baptist, we see that they rejected God the Father. But still, Jesus the Messiah, who John came to prepare the way for, came. And he lived upon the earth proclaiming the kingdom of God. And what did the authorities do? They arrested him. And they held a a sham of a trial, which led directly to his execution by crucifixion. So in rejecting Jesus, the Jews had not only rejected God the Father, they had now rejected God the Son. But there remained God the Spirit. And after Pentecost, the religious leaders opposed this Jesus' Messiah movement. They sought to silence it and even stamp it out completely. We might remember the account of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 in regards to this. And how this is what he said in Acts chapter 7 verse 51. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Just as they had rejected God the Father and then had rejected God the Son, now they were rejecting God the Holy Spirit. They had reached, as it were, the end of the line and there was no more forgiveness available. They had committed an unforgivable sin in their total and complete rejection of the grace of God. So it was the Jewish nation who committed the sin, but people today can't commit it. That's one perspective of the unforgivable sin. I'm not saying that's exactly what it is. I'm just laying out what people have said the unforgivable sin is. Another perspective is that the unforgivable sin is when somebody commits a really egregious sin or when they're called to stand up for their faith and yet they fail to do so. They deny the Lord. They have committed the unforgivable sin. I think it's pretty obvious that that isn't so because the egregious sins that are often considered to to be in this category are sins like murder and adultery and those are pretty egregious sins, no doubt. They're, they are sins. Don't misunderstand me today. I'm not saying it's okay to go kill somebody. Or if you're married today, go you know, commit adultery on your spouse. I'm not saying that at all. You know, that is a sin. But may I remind you that one that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, a man by the name of King David, was guilty of both of those. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of adultery. Yet he was a man after God's own heart. And when it comes to failure to stand up for our faith, who among us hasn't done that from time to time? I've been in ministry for 37 years now. And there are more times than I want to remember where I've had an opportunity to to speak up for the Lord and I have turned my back and walked away and I have not engaged in conversation. I have not stood up when I had an opportunity to do so. I mean, We read the Bible, we see people like the Apostle Peter not only walking away, but flat out denying that he knew the Lord. And yet Peter wasn't rejected by the Lord. Peter was restored by by the Lord. And so it's pretty patently obvious that this perspective is off base, that that is not what the unforgivable sin is. A third view of the unforgivable sin is that it is to decisively reject the clear truth that the Spirit reveals about the work of Christ. That takes place, for example, by attributing his mighty work to the work of Satan. And, and this, at least, is, is keeping the discussion in the context of, of the passage that we're dealing with here in, in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus is accused of performing exorcisms by the power of Satan. And yet we already mentioned earlier how that makes absolutely zero sense. This rejection leads to rebellion. It's a deliberate, deliberate repudiation of the truth about Jesus. 
And so as a result, God allows that person's heart to become so hard that they never repent. They never believe. They have gone too far. They have committed what the Apostle John calls a sin that leads to death. Let me put a quote up there on the screen for you. This is from 1 John chapter 5. John says, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. But there is an unforgivable sin that does lead to death, John is saying here. Now, regardless of where you land on this, there are some things that should be crystal clear. The first one is that we should be very careful not to confuse people by claiming that the unforgivable sin is something the Bible never claims it to be. Let me say that again in case you missed it. We should be careful never to confuse anybody by claiming that the unforgivable sin is something that the Bible never says it is. We've already talked about adultery and and murder in this regard. And as horrible as both of them are, and they are, they're not unforgivable. Let me illustrate this, though. Another reason why we should not do this with a, a personal story. I remember when I was serving as a youth pastor in that first church in central Florida that I told you about earlier. There was one particular Sunday when multiple teens in our youth came to me after Sunday school and before the worship service, literally in tears, very upset. Karen, I don't know if you remember this. I don't even know if we were married. I think we might have been married. I can't remember if this was before or after, but there was about seven or eight teenagers that, that, that came, and one girl was so upset she was just sobbing. And so I just grabbed them, and I took them into a room, and I what in the world is going on? I asked them. Well, earlier that week, one of their friends from school, not somebody from our youth group, but one of their friends from school had sadly committed suicide. That somehow came up in Sunday school. And their teacher told them very coldly and very matter-of-factly, well, he's in hell then because suicide is the unforgivable sin. He told them that person didn't have an opportunity to ask forgiveness. And so since their life ended with unconfessed and unforgiven sin, there's no way that they can be in heaven. And so you can imagine how upset these kids were to hear their Sunday school teacher telling them that their friend was now in hell. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this next statement. Just as with murder and adultery, this is wrong. It is not anywhere close to the truth. And so when you encounter people who tell you that if somebody takes their own life, they've committed the unforgivable sin and they forever separate it from God, you can take it to the bank. That is not what the Bible teaches. This teacher was as wrong as could be. This was way, way before we understood and what we know today about the importance of and the impact of mental health. But even then, it didn't take a biblical scholar to know that this teacher's perspective wasn't just off-center. It missed the target completely. Did I mention yet that this teacher was wrong? He he didn't know what he was talking about. And I felt so bad for those kids. It took me a while to get them calmed down. I'm pretty sure we all actually missed the worship service that day. But I finally helped them to see how wrong that perspective was. Don't confuse people by making the unforgivable sin something that the Bible never claims that it is. Here's a second overarching principle. If you're following Jesus, do not 
please hear me, do not lose sleep over whether you've committed this sin or not. Let me just make it real easy for you. If you're thinking you might have committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. May I say that again in case you missed it? If you were thinking that you might have committed the unforgivable sin, then you haven't. There's a great quote from Andy Nacelli in a Gospel Coalition article about this. Let me just read it to you today. He says, quote, Those who have committed the unpardonable sin are not worried about it. They are hardened in their unbelief. So if you are worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, that is a reliable sign that you have not committed it. If you are ashamed of your sin against God, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So instead of feeling hopelessly condemned, keep turning from your sins and keep trusting Jesus. If you are in Jesus the Messiah, then there is no condemnation for you. End quote. Say amen, church. There is no condemnation when we are in Christ. Do we sin? Every day. You're looking at the chief of sinners right here. I sin every day. I'm going to sin before this day ends multiple times. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife or daughter. They'll tell you about some of them. I'm going to sin today. I'm going to sin tomorrow. And I'm going to be forgiven for those sins because of God's grace. Because Jesus loved me that much that he went to the cross and died for every sin I've ever committed in the past and every sin I'm ever going to commit in the future and the ones that I may even be committing right now that I don't even know about. You know, that's how much he loves me. And then there's a a third principle. Regardless of what you think about the unforgivable sin, and I I want everybody to listen, I, I want you to hear what I'm about to say here. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you need to repent and believe. This, this is what I think we can take from this. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to repent and believe. You don't want to take the risk of going so long in your persistent unbelief and rebellion against God that he turns you over to the hardness of your heart. God will graciously receive any who repent and trust Jesus. And the fact that you're here today hearing this message may well be the means that God has ordained for you to do just that. This may be God's plan for you today to turn from your sin and and trust Christ. And and, and I, I know beyond the shadow of doubt that if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted Jesus, that is his will. That is what he desires for you. He doesn't hope that one day maybe you will. He desires more than anything that today you will turn from your sin and you will trust Jesus. Behold, now is the accepted time, Paul said to the Corinthian church. Today is the day of salvation. Don't believe the accusation of the evil one who says there's no hope for you because in Christ there is hope. You can be made new. Paul put it so well in that familiar verse in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, when he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. I implore you today to trust Jesus if you haven't already done so. But I want us to turn our attention to one thing we see finally today in our passage, and that is the recognition of an eternal family. Look at these last verses, 31 through 35. We return here to to more details about the, the family of Jesus that we were talking about earlier. They're standing outside of the house. They're calling for him, and the crowd informs Jesus that they're outside, and they want him to come out to where they are. But notice the response of Jesus. It's really quite interesting. Verse 33, he says, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looks at all those around him, those who desired to be with him, to to hear from him and to learn from him. And he says, here are my mother and brothers. 
Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Understand that Jesus is not being rude to his family here. Some commentators even claim that the, the motives of his family were right, but their purpose was wrong because they didn't yet understand why Jesus had come. Maybe they're right, or perhaps they're giving them a little too much credit at this point, at least. Eventually, the family of Jesus would realize why he had come. His brother James, who was likely standing outside, calling for him, thinking he's, he's, he's lost his ever-loving mind. We need to get him home and get him some mental health. Maybe James was thinking that. We don't know. The text doesn't say it. But eventually, James would become a bastion of faith and lead the efforts of the church there in Jerusalem. But not at this point. There may, they may have been part of the earthly family of Jesus But it seems at this point, they were not yet a part of the eternal family of God. So Jesus used this as an opportunity to teach a a greater spiritual lesson to any who had ears to hear. And that is that the family of God is made up of those who do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, I am so glad you asked me today. The will of God is that you believe in Jesus. And that's not just my perspective. This is what Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 40. He said, this is the will of my Father. You want to know what the will of the Father is? Whenever you get Jesus making a statement, this is the will of my Father, listen up, because you're about to get it. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, folks, you, you were born into this world as children of disobedience. This is how Paul describes us in in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6. Yet that was never true of Jesus. That's not how he was born. He was a child of obedience from day one. Describing himself in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, this is what it says. See, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. To become a child of obedience like Jesus requires a new birth on our part. We must be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. The natural ties of earthly family have to be swallowed up in the spiritual ties of an eternal family, the family of God. And that kind of rebirth only comes from God. Only He can regenerate a a human heart. It never comes because of our efforts, our church attendance, our generosity, our morality, anything else that we do. It comes only because Jesus died on on the cross in our place. And we believe and trust his atonement is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins.